and welcome to Talking Aussie Books, a weekly podcast bringing readers and writers of Australian fiction together. I'm Claudine Tanellis. As an avid reader and passionate advocate for Australian fiction, I make it my mission to spotlight local talent. So if you're looking for your next read or simply want to learn more about the Australian literary scene, this podcast is for you. Grab yourself a cuppa, sit back and relax. This episode is brought to you by HarperCollins Publishers Australia. Listeners, a couple of weeks ago, I was at the annual Bellingen Readers and Writers Festival and had the joy of interviewing an author whose career I've been watching for a few years now. And today I get to do it all over again. Paul Dalgano is a Melbourne-based author of two novels and two non-fiction titles. Born and raised in Scotland, Paul has lived in Australia since 2010 and has written for a variety of publications, including The Guardian, Big Issue Scotland and Australian Book Review. Paul has worked as Deputy Editor of The Conversation Australia and Features Editor for the Herald Newspaper Group in the UK. Earlier this year, Paul's second novel, A Country of Eternal Light, was published by HarperCollins. And listeners, what a novel it is. Wonderfully perceptive, witty and brilliantly crafted examination of grief, which left me marvelling at Paul's immense talent. And so it is with great pleasure that I welcome Paul to the podcast today. Hi, Paul. Hi, Claudine. It's lovely to be talking again. It is lovely to see and speak with you again. Now, Paul, this book is everywhere at the moment. In fact, you're everywhere, out and about at festivals, which is so wonderful to see. So how are you feeling about its reception? Is it everything that you'd hoped for for this book? It, it is. I mean, it's everything I hoped for for my last novel too, the problem was my last novel was released in 2020 so I did get some festival invites for that one um so a bit but of course they end up being in your kitchen on zoom during lockdown which has some real benefits I mean you can be in your pajamas and go back to bed straight afterwards but um the opportunity this time to actually go out and meet people and have proper conversations in 3D has just been um it's been incredible I've loved every second yeah brilliant so Paul can you tell us about this story and what inspired you to write it? So A Country of Eternal Light is a first-person narration by a narrator called Margaret Bryce, who was 64 at the time of her death in 2014, and she's narrating the novel from the early 2020s. She doesn't really know if she's in a kind of purgatory or an in-between space, and really she, she's not particularly new agey or mystic or at one point she says she doesn't believe in souls so she's as um, kind of surprised as anybody that she would be um, still around and, and what she's doing throughout the novel is revisiting various scenes from her life that she, she was there the first time or she wasn't there the first time when they were happening uh, and also moments and scenes from the years since she died um, so that includes checking in essentially on her daughters, Eva, who lives in Madrid, Rachel, her twin sister, who lives in Melbourne with her wife, Jem, and their two children, um, her husband, her estranged husband, Henry, uh, and her best friend, Barb, um, and some other people too. But they, these are the kind of core set of characters in the book. As to, um, I, I should say um, as well that Margaret's not revisiting these in terms of recollection she's literally revisiting them so sometimes we have living margaret and dead margaret in the same scene um so she's watching herself um in the past and sometimes there's a little suggestion that people in the past can also see dead margaret that develops throughout the novel i guess and really um the inspiration for writing it is basically this idea of complicated grief which is one of the many shades of grief that probably all of us will experience to uh, some degree in our lives it's a kind of um psychologist term i guess complicated grief so it's one of many grief adjustment disorders which comes to the fore really when you haven't seen a body after it's died or seen it in the form of seeing a coffin or gone to a crematorium or even seen a gravestone so people dying at sea would be a, a very common one and this covid era that we're all still living through but particularly through lockdowns a lot of people didn't get a chance to say a proper goodbye to to their loved ones and for all the reasons we know and it can also be for example, if a if a young person dies or someone we think of as being in the prime of their life dies and it somehow bucks the, the kind of natural order to be. So all of those things really can lead to this idea of complicated grief where instead of 
processing grief in a normal way, which in itself is very complicated. We all know you can have a strange psychological condition where someone is, you, you know, they're dead intellectually, but you also kind of think they're still alive intellectually. So it's a bit of a Schrodinger's cat situation. And in my case, there, there were three people, um, more than three people have died from my close family since I moved to Australia in 2010. But among those three people I was very close to, so my maternal grand, my maternal grandfather and my mum all died at times that it was just impossible for, for different reasons each time, actually, but impossible for me to get back over for their funerals. So my last moments with all of them, thankfully, I have to say, is us saying that we loved each other and hugging and, you know, smiling as we said goodbye. But then uh, news of their death came to me by phone call, usually at that time of night when you're like, oh, this this definitely won't be a good phone call. So yeah, I, I guess I've got a little bit of personal experience with this idea of um, somebody, you, you kind of almost have to remind yourself that they're dead and you can really catch your breath at that moment um, because you haven't quite had that moment in that ceremony of saying a proper goodbye to them. So a, a number of people have said with a country of eternal light, oh, so it's, it's a ghost story which I guess is a good shorthand for it. You know, it's somebody who's who's dead, who's still around. But to my mind, I was never thinking of it as a ghost story simply and um, illogically, really, that the narrator of the story is both alive and dead. Indeed, and it is just a beautiful and fascinating story at the same time. Paul, did you always know that you would be writing from the perspective of a dead woman? I mean, look, as you've just said, you know, Margaret is alive in some scenes and dead in some scenes as well. But you inhabit the mind of dead Margaret for a lot of the novel. So tell me about your decision to write from her perspective in that way. So some of the earliest writing that exists in some form, in an almost homeopathic form, you know, it's kind of been rinsed out otherwise, but there's there's still traces of it. I go back to as far as I think 2013, even 2012 maybe, uh, at which point my own mum was dying, We, you know, and it was terminal. We knew she was going to die. And I thought at that point, I'm just going to write down everything that's happening uh, emotionally and, and physically in the world. But I also knew that I didn't want to write at any point a memoir of my mum dying for, for numerous reasons. The, the main one being when you're already grieving, the last thing you want to do is get up at five in the morning and try to bring a loved one back to life on the page only to then kill them again at the end. So that writing was there as a kind of basis for um, what would become this novel, which to my mind then became a character that was completely distinct from my mum, really. It's not it's not my mum's life story or anything. And um, I started that in the third person and then over the years tried to, uh, I did kind of short stories or scenes from a first-person perspective, the problem being that they felt very much like caricature, and it's not like that came as a revelation years later. When I when I wrote them, I thought this sounds like me trying to be uh, a woman in her 60s, and it's cliched and horrible and just doesn't ring true. And, and really, it wasn't until 2021 where the crux of this novel, that the, the main drive, everything you see in it now really was done in a, a real dream state over three months at the end of 2021, uh, where for the first time in my life, I had the chance to write full time, nine to five or beyond every single day, which I did six days a week, eight to 10 hours a day um, in a state of frenzy is the wrong word, but extreme focus and an extreme dreamlike state. And it was during that time that, that um, it just kind of clicked. I, I, I kind of describe it as, you know, writing from my gut rather than my head. I was no longer trying to imitate what I thought Margaret would sound like, I guess. It was much more uh, reaching a place of deep, somehow intuitive honesty within myself, where if I ever strayed off and it became caricature to me, I, I would feel it quite strongly. And so having those, it's a bit like those um, bumper lanes for your kids at the bowling, you know, they, they were suddenly there. And that gave me just a lot more ability, I guess, to write consistently in that voice and the fact that I was doing it every single day. So, um, you know, it, it, it's of everything I've written, it's definitely the most fictional thing I've ever written, but the most made up stuff, which of course is what fiction is. But 
because of all of those things and because the way this came around, I think it's um, by far the most honest thing I've ever written, the thing that says the most that ultimately I would like to see in the world. You talk about the fact that you were writing from your gut period of, you know, dream state that you said you you wrote the bulk of this novel in. But still, at the end of the day, you're writing from the perspective of not only a dead woman, but a woman, an elderly woman who died of ovarian cancer. So I'm always intrigued to know how an author gets in or inhabits the mind or the psyche of their characters, and even more so for you in Margaret's case. Yeah, um, I mean, I've I've given this a bit of thought only because it's a it's a question that people ask, and it's a, it's a good question. You know, it's a really genuine and and understandable question that people would ask, but it's actually quite a hard one to answer as well. Um, so I, I think whatever character you're creating, whether it's, you know, uh, man, woman, non-binary, child, etc., there's the same kind of work involved in keeping a kind of consistency. So as every single person listening to your podcast and yourself, of course, would know, you know, books take a long time to write. So it's not just being on one day, it's being on for many days over years, sometimes with months in between being able to write. So getting a character to feel like they're at that point where they can have a continuity through through quite a long journey in a book uh, it takes a long time to get to and therefore it's quite hard to actually see what the breadcrumbs were it, it's almost like you just get to the point where it feels right um but the, the minute before getting to that point it's still not right you're, you're just on a journey of the character not being right until it finally finally happens um but but i would say um you know that the penny kind of dropped for me in a way by realizing what is very obvious uh, on some level but to, to realize it on a character level was uh, felt like a revelation in a way but this idea that you know 99.9 percent of our human experience is common you know there's a commonality regardless of race gender and age you know the, the same anxieties motivations loves um focus on relationships they, they kind of happen um just universally for all of us so i think by focusing on the 99.9 percent and essentially steering clear of the what's 0.1 percent that's the way to that's the way to hopefully get to where you want to get to when you're doing that well in death margaret travels backwards and forwards in time as you alluded to earlier we meet her in 1984 when her twin girls eva and rachel are only eight but then we're quickly transported around various points in time. She witnesses different events involving herself and her family, events which take place against the cultural, social and political landscape of Scotland at the time. And yet I think it's fair to say that Margaret doesn't understand why she's there. So I wonder if you could tell us more about that and why does she feel so duped? Yeah, Margaret has has no understanding. She's got two things going on. I mean, part of her is quite happy because she's getting to see her grandkids in Australia, which would have been a very rare occurrence for her during her life. She, she visits Melbourne once in the book, at which point she's diagnosed with the illness that will eventually kill her. So it's, it's hardly the, the happy holiday she'd envisaged. Um, that was her first time meeting uh, her youngest grandkid and only, you know, one of the few times she'd met the three-year-old. So she kind of reflects at one point that, you know, she, she'll say things like, I'm not complaining because I like seeing them, but also why am I here? And I think she feels a bit tired by the whole thing. And she is very aware. Uh, she, she's a kind of self-taught huge reader in her life. And so she's very aware of, you know, the concepts from Dante and just, you know, bog standard Christianity that, you know, there, there's this in-between space and, you know, there's probably a mission to be accomplished or something that a soul needs to do before it can rest. But she's also not a believer in those things. You know, she's interested in them as ideas, but she she's not investing any faith in those ideas. So I think for that reason, she she's kind of... um confused really as to as to what's going on she, she doesn't necessarily want to not see her family again that part's good but she does kind of think what's the point why why am I doing this what's what's it all for you talked a little bit earlier about complicated grief but the other thing that I think you explore with such poignancy is the effect of grief and how it can render someone blinkered to reality and what's really happening around them was this also something you specifically wanted to explore or more a product of Margaret's journey? It's definitely something I wanted to explore. Um, one, but not the only reason, but one of the reasons the book is told out of chronology with, um, you know, within the same chapter, maybe you're in 
or different time frames sometimes is partially because of this reality when you're grieving that um, time starts bending in strange ways. It's no longer the straight arrow. It's much more jumping around and the, the things your mind can jump around to are not the the grand Shakespearean gestures of these kind of cinematic moments in your life. They're actually often quite seemingly mundane things that you didn't realize were very important or a smile that you didn't realize was significant or, or carrying a lot of weight for you. Um, but yeah, I, I think when, for, for me anyway, if a book's going to be about grief, you want to look at it from as many angles as you can. So there's the complicated grief idea running through it. But Margaret has other griefs too. So she essentially in life was grieving the fact that, um, you know, Margaret had never traveled overseas until her kids moved overseas. Um, so, But she's still grieving that idea that her twin daughters are, you know, at opposite ends of the earth. They're no longer with her. She's grieving her marriage, which was perfectly serviceable and, you know, loving, certainly in the early years. Uh, she's grieving the steep decline of that and in, in kind of later years of the marriage. Um, and she's also grieving herself. So one of Margaret's kind of preoccupations really is her own body and the body of her grandkids and the body of her daughters. Um, and that's for a couple of reasons. I mean, one, she's dead. So literally she's, she doesn't have a body anymore. So bodies in general hold this kind of fascination and slight grief for her. Um, but also because she's seeing herself as a very young woman, um, particularly doing things like, you know, she used to jog or, you know, she used to wear short skirts. But by the end of her physical life, uh, she had oedema in her legs. So her, her body essentially through illness had changed quite a bit by the end. So she, she has this kind of bittersweet grief of looking back at who she was and the fact that she didn't quite appreciate what a blessing anybody is um, really while she was alive and in that body. So in every kind of sense throughout the book, I'm just trying to look at grief so that it feels um, like I'm covering the topic essentially. But the, the other thing being, even though we all experience grief, we all experience it differently. So what I mentioned earlier that you know, I didn't want to write a memoir about my mum dying because a part of, another reason for that really is my grief is just my grief. And if you start telling people what grief is, you know, this is what I felt and this is how it was, that's fine. Everyone can relate to that, but it, it, it doesn't belong to you. You know, your own grief belongs to you, but grief is universal. So in tackling a topic like grief, I don't think you need to lay it on thick of, you know, I woke up and I felt like this and then I felt horrible, blah, 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 because that part won't necessarily chime with people other than in, in broad terms of, of they're talking about grief. So my decision really, you know, we know Margaret's dead from the middle of the first sentence. There, there's absolutely no surprise to the fact Margaret's dead. It's not a reveal. Um, and so once you have a backdrop of grief, once you have a backdrop of death and loss, the way I think to actually bring that out is not to hammer on about grief in the in the writing, but it's to focus on the flip side of grief, which is love uh, and the small moments in life. Um, and if you can focus on the positives, essentially, if you can bring out the positives, but you already know that grief is there in the story, I, th I think that kind of magnifies the grief and keeps it universal enough that people in the experience of reading it or, you know, encountering the story, have a lot of space to, to, to bring their own grief or their own bittersweet memories into it without feeling they're being, you know, uh, hit on the head with a hammer. When we were in Bellingen, I asked you this question and I, and I think it's worth asking again. I asked you if you thought Margaret is an unreliable narrator or did her grief simply alter her perspective and is there a difference? Yeah, that, that was a good question you asked me then, and it's still good now. It's such a good question, but it, it's got a couple of parts to it. So let me try and get it a bit more kind of fluent to my answer this time. Definitely grief has affected Margaret's reliability or, or basically sense of confidence in her own reliability. So we're getting that as the reader. Um, throughout the book, Margaret will um increasingly i guess I start having a sense that there's something she's forgetting but she doesn't really know if she's forgetting it um deliberately or if she's forgotten it by accident or she's forgotten it um 
deliberately and so for example when when she's back essentially with her husband who we already know they, they had like a loving relationship at one point she'll have sudden bursts of anger or negativity towards them and then check herself a bit and that that will happen with one of her daughters too and that reaction i think kind of surprises margaret so you know my own as as i said when we last chatted my own i guess theory or experience of life is that we're all unreliable narrators you know um, there's plenty of research out there to show that those stories that we tell about things that happened in the past actually change each time on the telling so by the hundredth telling of you know, one of those stories we all have that's a kind of key story about us, it'll actually be quite different from the first telling. And that's not necessarily that you're adding arms and legs each time and saying, oh, no, but, you know, the person was eight foot tall or nine foot tall and kind of, it's not through exaggeration as such. Mm. It's just the fallibility of memory. So what we're responding to each time we remember something isn't the actual event, but the memory of the retelling of that event. So we become increasingly unreliable as we go, which I think um, would come to come as a shock to most of us, you know, to think, oh, wow, if, if we actually saw what happened versus what we thought happened a hundred times after retelling it, I think we'd see quite a big difference. So that, that's definitely built into the character of Margaret. And for me, the the huge appeal of a first person narrator is really that we're inside somebody's mind so to to be in somebody's mind that um you, you know sometimes when uh, when i read first person narrators i just think jesus do people think like that they're so together and nothing they think is wrong and their their view of the world is concrete and um, for me as a reader and a writer i really like to explore the fact that um, we're definitely questioning ourselves and what, what we're thinking doesn't always correspond to what's happening out there in the real world. So discussion of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is a motif that runs throughout the book. What was it about this story that resonated with you and why was this important to the characters in their story arc? I think first and foremost, Frankenstein is um, an exploration of the, the spark of life. What What is the spark of life? Can it be recreated by humans as opposed to God or, you know, nature? Um, and if it can be recreated, should it be recreated? Should, should we be messing with uh, life and death ultimately? And, and that theme was resonant at the time the book was first um, published in 1818. And it's still resonant now, you know, and throughout gene technology and whatever else, should we be messing with life? And what happens if we life is that real life or is it a frankenstein's monster situation so from that point of view of course um, it really chimes i think with the book that this uh, the novel is also looking at themes of life and death but something when we were talking just a second ago about unreliable narrators the whole of frankenstein which is rarely show, shown in films i think it's shown in the kenneth branagh version but in, in no other they just cut this bit out but the whole book is actually being narrated via letters that a man called Robert Walton is writing to his sister called Margaret, funnily enough. And um, in those letters, he's basically, the first seven letters or something before we even meet Frankenstein, he's talking about how if he could only meet a friend who was more intelligent than the buffoons he's on a, a boat with going to the, uh, you know, the North Pole, essentially, he's, he's an explorer looking for glory. You know, if I could just meet this man, I'd do anything he wanted. I'd, you know, fall at his feet. I'm incredibly lonely. I'm like desperate for intelligent company, et cetera. And I guess there's a question of why that's there. I mean, that's that's not on the face of it pertinent to the story of Frankenstein and his monster. And then implausibly, the boat gets caught in ice in the middle of the sea, and Frankenstein comes along on a dog sled, half dead, along the ice. I, I don't think that could happen physically, but anyway, that, that's what happens. He gets dragged on board, and then the rest of the book is essentially Robert writing to Margaret, saying, this, this is what Frankenstein told me. So already, I think there's, um, as was common in that era with epistolary novels, there's a strange distancing going on, which always interests me. It's like, why aren't we in the action? Why is this a story being told via letter? But in the case of Frankenstein, um, Dr. Frankenstein is telling Robert Walton stories, including stories that the monster has told him, 
about things that happened with other people who told other stories and it's all being communicated back to Margaret Saville, his sister in England. So there's an incredible distancing going on and you know, there are two versions of Frankenstein that Mary Shelley worked on. One was in 1818 and one came out in 1831, by which point her partner, Percy Shelley, had died. He drowned and, uh, you know, she, she'd had the death of children to contend with as well. So the second version is slightly bleaker. It's got a slightly different, um, you know, it's got some textual changes that change the kind of philosophy of the book. But it's also got um, a foreword by Mary Shelley in which she talks in very black and white terms about why she wrote the story and she created a monster and she created uh, the kind of uh, mad scientist. But um, in spite of, you know, what the author said a bit, a bit kind of cheekily, I guess, I think there's a very easy way to read that book as if... Um, a, Dr. Frankenstein's a completely unreliable narrator. I mean, he talks about falling into nervous fits and nervous fevers that he needs to recover from for three months just as he creates the monster. So I think the monster is up for, for debate. But also um, Robert Walton himself. So other than Frankenstein, the only person in the entire novel who lives at the end to have seen the monster or to claim to have seen the monster is Robert Walton, who catches sight of the monster really fleetingly, literally over the dead body of Frankenstein, who's laid out in, a, in the ship. The monster arrives at the window, says, oh, my creator's dead. I'm off to throw myself in a pyre. And that's Robert Walton's one view. So Robert Walton himself at that point is overcome with grief. His one amazing friend that he's, he'd wanted in his life has just died in front of him. And he sees or thinks he sees this monster that um, apparently jumps up on the ship. But I don't think it's a very reliable witness account. Anyway, very, very long-winded way of saying that I, I think there's a clear way of reading Frankenstein that requires a, a second reading that looks at it from the point of view of unreliable narration. Uh, and again, this this kind of chimed with what I was what I was looking to do in A Country of Eternal Light. Well, in the beginning, I was as intrigued as Margaret about the purpose of her bodiless existence. But in the later stages of the book, we get a sense of intense foreboding. As you alluded to earlier, she keeps thinking that there's something she's forgotten. And you manage to lead us up into this emotional place in the novel without us ever suspecting the reason for it. Did you know what this reason was when you set out to write the novel or did it reveal itself to you as you were writing? It revealed itself in the sense, um, like I knew something was going to happen and I knew that would be pivotal to the entire story, but it was actually a different thing I was thinking. It was a slightly different occurrence that happened. And it wasn't until I got to the place where that occurrence was going to happen that I woke up that day, I'd finished the bit that leads up to that, and I, I was having a shower. Um, as I said, I wrote this in a dream state, you know, through, throughout lockdown, I wasn't seeing anybody. So it was, it was, a strange experience of every time I was having a shower or brushing my teeth, all I was really thinking about were these characters who felt very real to me in that moment. And I had this um, modified idea for what could happen. And I just thought, I'm going to try and write that today. Um, uh, you know, get get the bare bones of that down, this thing that's going to happen. And I've got no idea if I can make it work or if it's going to feel, um, you know, just poorly written or like a weird, a weird thing to happen. And I wrote it just in one go, burst into tears, went and made myself a sandwich, um, a cup of tea, came back again to go through it again, which I, I always like to kind of redraft quite quickly on something I've written, um, burst into tears again at the same point. And I thought, well, this is this is probably you know where, where the book needs to go. That's how it came about. But then, of course, you're doing more drafts to the book after that. And as soon as I understood that this this was the kind of iceberg under the story it meant going back to the start again and reframing everything in a way all the way through so there was already the story all the way through if anybody has you know the patience or the interest to to read the book twice once you kind of know where it's all going and what what the kind of yeah that iceberg is there are very kind of clear signs all the way through that it's actually what's happening um, which I kind of like. I like the kind of hiding in plain sightness of it. Um, but I, I'm very happy to hear that you didn't see it coming. So that part worked at least. 
I definitely didn't see it coming and it was emotionally devastating when it did happen. Mm. But interestingly, I did go back and I did read mm. certain parts. I wouldn't say I read the whole thing again, but I, I read certain parts going, I, I need to go back. I need to, mm. I need to figure out what's happened here. And as you say, hiding in plain sight and it was very clear what was going on when you're looking mm. for it, obviously. But on first reading, you're not looking for it. It came as a complete shock. Oh, that's good. I've, I've <laughs> never been, um, I, I, like every other kid, probably I got those little magic sets when I was a kid and I was never good at doing magic <laughs> tricks. I'm glad I'd finally I've managed to pull one off. Indeed. It was, yeah, as I said, emotionally devastating. Paul, I mentioned earlier that the narrative moves backwards and forwards in time, offering us glimpses into Margaret's life at different points in time and beyond her life as well. There are a lot of writers that listen to this podcast and I'm sure they'll be interested to understand why you decided to structure the novel this way. Well, there, there's a couple of reasons. One being, one I guess we touched on a little bit, which is just the nature of grief, the way that time doesn't work chronologically. There's an Argentinian uh, book that I love called Hopscotch uh, by a writer called Julio Cortázar. Um, basically, Argentina's two big 20th century writers were Borges and Julio Cortázar, and Julio Cortázar is basically as kind of mind-bending as Borges, but with a, a kind of more playful sense of humour, I guess. Um, and in this novel, Hopscotch, it's got 155 chapters, and at the, on the opening page, it tells you there's two ways to read this book. Either you can start at, you know, chapter 155, and then just follow the instructions at the end of each chapter, or you can read it chronologically to from chapter 1 to 73 and just stop there. Um, or alternatively, just start wherever you want and hop around all over the book and see what happens. So um, I didn't really realize that was an inspiration, but I, I've always, I love that book and I love just the um, kind of stupidity, but playfulness of thinking, just jump in wherever, wherever you want and see what happens. So um, I was kind of interested in doing that with the chronology, but also once you've committed to it, you either, you know, by the time you're one chapter in, if that's what you've thought you're going to do, you always have the decision of this isn't working or this is working. And it felt like it was working at the start. And then, of course, once you've set it up like that, it'd be really odd if suddenly the rest was chronological, but the first chapter was all over the place uh, time-wise. And so the challenge then really became... I mean, I can't really think of anything more frustrating than um, constantly being thrown to a different time. I mean, on the face of it, it sounds like the worst writing advice you could ever give anybody is, oh, you've got people into a flow in 2021. Why don't you now go to 1997? Oh, now you've got them in a flow. Why don't you do this? So the, the challenge really becomes, um, as the person trying to make it work, how do you keep the story going forward? Because nobody likes being you know, it's like somebody interrupting every time you're trying to say something and you're like, I just can't get into a flow here. So the challenge really became how to keep the story moving forward at all times and to not feel you've just like ruined the reading experience while flitting around all over the place. And all of that came about in this three month stint. And I think if I'd written the book over months, like here and there, kind of at weekends and, you know, evenings, it, it it would never have worked because I would have got really confused. But the way I did it was I've got a very clear chronological timeline of what happens and when. That is when everyone was born, what their birthdays were, what was happening in the world, you know, what their dog's name is, when it was born, when it got put down, like a million details on it, which allowed me to, as I was writing it, quite intuitively say, all right, now I'm going to go back to the marriage of blah and blah, or mm, now's the time that I'll go there. So I wasn't plotting it out as a kind of first should come this year, then should come that year. It's more that I had the luxury of being able to just get into an absolute flow intuitively with it, but also look at my second monitor and say, right, okay, so at this time, the twins would have been 12, Margaret would have been, you know, in, in her 30s, etc., and do it that way. Margaret's humour and self-deprecation is quite amazing in this novel. And it also helps us, despite the serious themes of the book help us feel moments of joy I laughed out loud at some of the funny things Margaret says but also her linguistic prowess in the writing process were you conscious of trying to balance you know the dark with such moments of levity or did that come in later drafts 
I think it's just the way I write. So my actual um, process when I'm writing, uh, which some people will know if they kind of follow me on Instagram, because I went through a phase of posting about it. I write weirdly, but with a very large font. So as in like 72 font put up to 500% magnification on my screen. So basically a comma is about the size of your hand. And the reason I do that isn't, uh, as numerous people have suggested, because I really need very strong glasses. It's because for me, the absolute worst nightmare is to be stuck on a sentence and staring at that sentence on the screen and thinking, is that the right sentence? So when I'm writing, when I'm getting the guts of anything down, what I want to do is keep writing. If I'm writing for an hour, I write for an hour. I don't stop. I don't think about punctuation. And it's really a race just to try and get ahead of my own thoughts and to try and get stuff down without even thinking about it. So I know, you know, a scene starts with someone walking into the room and ends with them walking out of the room. But maybe everything that happens in between is just coming out in a torrent, just trying to make it automatic writing. And having the letters that big on the page basically means I can't see what I'm writing. You know, I can only see like half a word at a time, but I can't see that the words are going down. Anyway, as as a kind of byproduct of that, what then happens when I look back and think, oh, wow, I've written 2,000 words in normal font size. Quite often, there's humor in there that I... I didn't intend and um I'm happy to see that and it kind of makes me laugh or, or at least you know internally laugh I guess because I wasn't aware of it or I wasn't aware how the phrasing would make that thing funny um, and I think it's there in all of my writing people uh, always said you know my writing makes them laugh but I've never consciously thought I'm going to try and write something funny or what if I had a joke there etc it, it just comes out in the writing which I think is something Australia and Scotland potentially the rest of the UK has in common that you want to have levity in there with the dark stuff not not as a technique but as a kind of thing when when things are particularly grim everyone loves somebody making a, a bit of a joke or a light comment or if something funny happens which doesn't it's a bit like we were discussing before you know to, to write about grief you focus on love and in a way to, to have things be quite heavy it's quite nice to have a focus on levity as well because otherwise it's just unrelentingly grim you're just faced with very very sad stuff which can work in terms of writing but in life if life if, if it's a reflection of life I, I like to think of life as being not making fun of things that are really difficult for people but always the opportunity that somebody's going to say something or something will happen that brings a bit of a laugh within what is otherwise a, a very difficult situation. Well, I see from the title pages, you quote Mary Shelley's Frankenstein again with what may not be expected in a country of eternal light. Now, when I read that, I thought, oh, that's where Paul's got the 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 title of the novel from. And, and to be honest with you, I thought that you were, it referred to Scotland in particular mm. and the sun doesn't seem to go down in summertime mm. but tell me a little bit more about that and was this your title or was this something the publisher chose for the book it was my second title for the book so my the title I submitted it to the publisher with was Margaret Bryce's post-life crisis which is the only reason Margaret's second name is Bryce because it made that a uh, title work <laughs> And basically, it got picked up by the first uh, publisher it went to, Catherine Milne at Fourth Estate, HarperCollins. And, you know, um, she loved it and then had to take it to acquisitions. And the, and the feedback from acquisitions was, really love this book. We want to publish it, but we're not sure the jokes should start on the cover. Maybe they should start somewhere else inside the book. At, at which point I thought, oh, shit, you know what? if they suddenly come up with a title that I don't like and I don't have anything to counter it with. My working life is as a journalist. I'm quite used to writing headlines and coming up with things and also that race to try and come up with a better idea before someone else does. So um, I'd actually had A Country of Eternal Light there on there's, there's an entire draft version with that title. My only reservation was that my partner, Kate, said it sounded too religious. She's from a Catholic background. And she was like, oh, does it sound a bit like it's a kind of religious text? Which I kind of didn't think, but it was always enough of a question mark. Because, of course, you've 
told very few people before you submit the book what the book is or what it's about. Um, but then I sent that to the publisher and they they snapped that one up immediately so that it, that's that's why it's the title. Yeah, fantastic. Oh, I love it. Well, I understand you've also published another book recently, a non-fiction title, and I think it was published earlier this month. Can you tell us more about this book? Yeah, so as you said, it's a non-fiction. It's called Prudish Nation. And um, this one is part memoir. Uh, well, it is kind of memoir, but with lots of interviews woven in and out of that memoir um, with people like Christos Cholkas and Ellen Van Nierven, Andrea Goldsmith, and um, I think it's about 30 contemporary Australian authors all in all who I speak to, also psychologists and cultural historians. And really, as the title might suggest, it's, it's looking at this idea of whether Australia is prudish uh, or not prudish. And spoiler alert, no, there, there's no definitive answer to that. There's no actual metrics for that. You know, it's, it's one of those kind of relative terms. But what that allows is for me and the interviewees to look at things like unconventional, in, in quotation marks, identities, sexualities, um, relationship types. There's... One of the authors is also a sex worker. One of the authors has a 30-something year gap of age between them and their partner. So really looking at, uh, from an experiential point of view, what how people feel they're kind of accepted or not accepted in modern-day Australia with an unconventional relationship. And the, the reason for the book really is my previous novel, Polly, uh, which came out in 2020, was about a married couple who, with kids who open up their marriage and ahead of that book coming out in agreement with my publisher my situation at that time has changed since was that I was married with kids and had another partner and you know my wife had another partner at the time and really the publisher thought and I agreed that it would be good to be kind of open about that so that it doesn't feel like you're just you know writing about that topic with no experience the, the huge downside which I hadn't accounted for was that, that almost every single interview or question I was asked about the book uh, wasn't about the book, which was the, the fictional thing. It was things like, oh, so what, what are the roles of polyamory? Or can you walk us through a typical day in your life? What do your kids think about your lifestyle? Who sleeps in which bed? You know, quite questions that I think they were well-meaning, the questions. But they're also very difficult to answer and, and not from a kind of, um, you know, a point of view of feeling ashamed. But, you know, like what's the tip, what's the typical day in the life of a polyamorous person? So, well, what's the typical day in what's the typical day in the life of a, um, you know, straight person or a gay person, etc. So I, I have to say, as the, as the straight, white, cis male in middle age, I am the very thing that queer defines itself against so I bumble through my life with all of the privilege the invisible privilege of being that particular person you know the white guy um, and therefore other than what I read I'm not really I've never been aware of I've never been on the receiving end of that judgment certainly not in a in a kind of Anglo-speaking country like Australia so that that experience was the first tiny 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 by comparison sense for me of actually being othered or having that weird feeling of why why do people want to talk about my you know my private life or my sex life it feels icky and weird so that that was what spurred me on to write the book and it really rests on the strength of the interviewees all of whom are super candid and super interesting and have different and interesting and unusual things to say about the state of the nation indeed gosh you've been busy it's been busy, yeah. I, I was telling somebody at the weekend, I actually ended up with dental problems last year through trying to write two books at once oh my God. Um, and spent more than my advance for one of the books on dental treatment. So I don't recommend it if anybody's listening that wants to, you know, I didn't know I was going to be writing two at once. It's just the contract for one, the Prudish Nation one, came through, it was sold on proposal. So like I hadn't interviewed anybody, I hadn't written anything. And that came through at exactly the same time I was finishing the novel. And then the novel, unusually for me, I'm used to being rejected by nearly everybody before one kind of soul picks up my work. Unusually, the novel got picked up immediately. So all of last year was either working on proofs for one of the books, working with an editor, 
or trying to do interviews for the other one and then I'd be looking forward to the next weekend saying oh I'll just take a break and then it would be like oh we need this thing back by this time or can you interview me again or stuff so by the end of the year I had this intense kind of sensitivity in my teeth which I saw me going to four different dentists that the last one of whom was a nerve specialist and ran all the same tests and you know even more x-rays and all the rest of it and he showed me on the x-rays where my nerves were in relation to my teeth and he was like you haven't been grinding because there's no teeth damage, but you've probably been clenching. Have you been doing anything kind of out of the usual this year in terms of, you know, workload? At which point I thought, right, I, I know what's happened to my teeth. I've got the answer. No more writing books for a while. Okay. So that was going to be my next question. For you, it's time for rest, right? Well, I did uh, foolishly um, just before I got my diagnosis for the teeth thing. I, I did NaNoWriMo last year and I, I smashed out about 80,000 words on the next thing I want to develop. Um, I mean, as I was saying before, I write really quickly. So it's not 80,000 pristine words. It's just kind of sense of them. But um, yeah, I have got another novel very much in mind which uh, in broad terms is looking at um, a couple of characters who, uh, between the ages of 13 and 14 and really getting into adolescence and what that means and those hormonal changes and that kind of werewolfy part of your life where you're still a kid but you're almost an adult and then other times you're an adult but still a kid um, and that um, that has fascinated me for a while that period of life so that's um, what I'll be looking at but only one book not two at the same time <laughs> well I'm very glad to hear that and I'm sure your dentist will be glad to hear as well yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh Paul look you've given us some wonderful gems right throughout the chat today about your writing process and why you write the way you write but are there like you know top three tips that you would offer about publishing or writing in general I think you know when I was saying before about write quickly I, th I think that's the thing to do so I remember before writing a book just picking out any book and being so intimidated by the fact that the opening lines and paragraph and page and then second page, they're so good. But, you know, it's only when you do it and start talking to other writers about their process that you're like, that doesn't mean that was the first thing they wrote, you know. And but when I was growing up, what I remember is seeing Kathleen Turner in Romancing the Stone, getting to the end of the manuscript uh, and, you know, lighting a cigarette and smashing a glass and writing the end. So I just thought, well, that's how you write books. You start them and then you get to the end. But yeah, so my advice would really be just charge ahead. And there's every chance that by the time you get to the end of a manuscript, you'll realize the first half is kind of weak by comparison. But the analogy to bear in mind is training for the gym or training yourself physically. At that end point, you're now a lot stronger as a writer. Your muscles have developed so instead of then taking a month off, get straight back to the start and start making the start stronger. And you can just keep going through it that way until, you know, th there's a point at which you should definitely stop, but keep going through it with your developed writerly muscles and really don't worry. Basically try to write a rubbish first draft, G give it your best shot, everything you can do to write a rubbish first draft. And you'll probably find out that you fail because it becomes quite good by the end, just through trying to make it bad. Um, so that would be one bit of advice. In terms of publishing advice, if you can, I would say get an agent. Like my first book, I sent it off to all, all publishers have a version of this, you know, Manuscript Wednesday or, you know, um, send us something Tuesday or whatever. And the, the idea being you can just send in your manuscript and it will be read and assessed with an agent. And Australia, unlike many countries, it has to be said, publishes a lot of books from writers without agents and that's fantastic but the problem with it is as the person on the receiving end especially if it's your first book you actually just never know if anybody's read it so the, the kind of terms and conditions are such that they'll say you know submit your book uh, leave it with us for 12 weeks if you don't hear anything just assume somebody's read it and it's not for our list it, you know so you're, you're kind of there with a the calendar app on your phone and you're like oh it's nearly like June the 22nd that's the 12 week mark and then that passes and then the next month passes and you're in this weird horrible limbo of never knowing whether anybody's actually looked at your work or whether it's just on some email account that nobody ever checks so um getting an agent can be 
about as hard as getting a publisher, but I think it's worth trying. My agent, Martin Shaw, picked me up when I didn't have that much to offer. I was working on a novel at the time, but generally an agent will just be looking for um, kind of your attitude or something. I mean, obviously you need to try try and be able to write well, but um, just looking for spending a bit of time looking for who might possibly be a good agent not in terms of you know getting you on a bestseller list but just the kind of books that they've worked on um which you can look up online pretty easily and what chimes with you you know if it's historical fiction then prob you know if that's their thing and you're writing historical fiction that's probably good if they're into crime and you're writing crime you know you, you can start doing it that way and maybe not you know it's like any relationship that the, the Email shouldn't be, you know, all caps, will you represent me? But you're trying to start a bit of a relationship and it's a little, you know, the, you're trying to get the kindling to light, not to like burn the whole house down in the first thing and just maybe try and build the relationship in a genuine way. Are they looking for writers at the moment? Might they be looking for them in a year? How do they like to receive things? Do they like the whole manuscript or just little bits and pieces uh, to, to have a look at? Um, because the difference is nearly everyone gets back to your agent and they still might get back and say look we thought this was terrible we hate it but um at least you kind of have that sense of closure that somebody somebody sent the work on your behalf and the publisher said look it's not for our list or you know whatever they say um so yeah that agent thing would be a second one i'm trying to think of a third uh, a third bit of advice i don't think i can right yeah. now Fantastic. Excellent. And thank you so much for sharing. That's wonderful. Paul, if listeners wanted to learn more about you and your books, where can they find you? Instagram's my favorite of social media things. Um, weirdly, it's pick based, as everyone knows, but um, actually, I really like reading what people write on Instagram and seeing their pics. So I'm on Instagram as uh, Narrative Friction is the handle. I'm on Twitter and dip in and out and feel scared of everything in the world every time I go on to it. But also there's some really nice people on Twitter and books people. Um, and that's just at Paul Dalgarno and Facebook. I kind of feel um, we've neglected so much each other so much over the past few years that Facebook doesn't really like me and I don't really like it. But I am I am on that too. At just um, just my name, Paul Dalgarno. Fantastic. Well, Paul, once again, I've just had the best time talking to you about this beautiful book. I wish you every success with it and your other projects. Thank you for joining me on Talking Aussie Books today. Thank you, Claudine. I'm a big fan of the podcast, as you know, so it's a, it's a personal kind of achievement and goal to be able to talk to you today. That's a wrap, folks. If you enjoyed this podcast episode, please drop me a line via my webpage at claudinetanellis.com, via Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. Alternatively, consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts. Until next time, happy reading.